I will show you that I can kill men with as much skill and rapidity as anybody. From this time on, I ask no quarter, and I will give none. These were the words spoken by Bloody Bill Anderson shortly before he executed and scalped over 20 men. According to those who rode with him, Anderson was, quote, a desperate man and a reckless fighter, the worst devil in the bunch. He could shoot a man who was on his knees begging for mercy as easy as most men kill a chicken. He feared no man alive and believed heart and soul in the Southern cause. Who was Bloody Bill Anderson? What events transpired that caused him to devote his entire life to war? A life that he once spoke of saying, quote, If I cared for my life, I would have lost it long ago. Wanting to lose it, I cannot throw it away. Was Bill Anderson a reluctant hero caught up in the passions of civil war or just a bloodthirsty villain using any excuse he could to terrorize the countryside? Find out all this and more on this newest You Gonna Pull Those Pistols or Whistle Dixie episode of Bloody Beavers Wild West Extravaganza. William T. Anderson, better known as Bill Anderson, was born in Hopkins County, Kentucky, sometime around 1829, one of at least seven children born to father William C. Anderson and mother Martha Jane Thomason. And Andersons would do quite a bit of moving around when Bill was a kid. The family left Kentucky for Palmyra, Missouri, before relocating to Iowa, and then back down to Missouri. Bill's father, William, would spend a short amount of time in California before moving the family again in 1857, this time to Kansas. By the year 1860, the family could be found in Agnes City, about 100 miles west of Kansas City. Bill's daddy had previously worked as a hat maker, but soon tried his hand at farming, a job his sons, or at least young Bill, would help him out with. Matter of fact, the younger Anderson was at one point a joint owner of over 300 acres with his father. Turns out, however, that farming possibly wasn't the only source of income for the Anderson family. Looks like they might have been dabbling in a little bit of horse thievery as well. Which brings us to the first disclaimer of this episode. Bloody Bill Anderson is a somewhat divisive figure. All you've got to do is Google the man and you'll find sources like PBS's American Experience making the claim that Bill was a butcher and a sociopath who came from a family of horse thieves and lived for spilling blood. There are others who will make the claim that Anderson was more of a hero, albeit a reluctant one. Almost like Clint Eastwood's Josie Wells character. A man forced into war to both avenge his family and protect his neighbors from an oppressive invading wave of northern aggression. As such, any talk of him being a horse thief or a criminal are either exaggerated or flat out made up in an attempt to smear his name. And we will try to look into which one of these narratives is the most correct on this episode. Just know that I am fully aware that some sources on Bill Anderson are biased. And also know that I have no dog in this fight. I'm just an impartial observer of history who's trying to be as factual as possible. And possibly attempting to work in a couple of dad jokes while I'm at it. With that said, according to at least one source I found, Bill's father was not only suspected of being a horse thief, but was even arrested for it, at least on one occasion. It also seems that two of his children, our very own Bill Anderson and his brother Ellis, had somewhat of a wild streak themselves. Both brothers got in separate yet deadly shooting scrapes with Native Americans there in Kansas sometime in the late 1850s, with Bill claiming that the man he killed, a member of the Call tribe, had been trying to rob him. Anderson would leave Kansas around this time, but it does not look like his departure was related to the shooting. He headed on down the Santa Fe Trail with a load of freight bound for New Mexico, but returned shortly thereafter empty-handed, saying that all his cargo, even the horses, had just up and disappeared. Whoopsie! After this air quotes failed venture, Bill would take to trading horses between Kansas and Missouri. 
It was also around this time that his mother, Martha Jane, was tragically killed by a lightning strike right there in the front yard. Now, this was 1860, so Bill was somewhere between like 20 and 22 years old. And things were really starting to heat up there in eastern Kansas. Which brings us to disclaimer number two. It's impossible to discuss Bloody Bill Anderson without discussing the American Civil War. It's also equally as impossible to discuss the border warfare that would take place there in Kansas and Missouri without discussing slavery. With all that in mind, I mean what I'm about to say in the nicest way possible. So please hear me out before you turn this episode off in anger. I have no desire to debate whether or not the Civil War was fought over slavery. I personally believe it was. If you don't agree, that's fine. I know a lot of you listening are pretty firm believers in the idea that the war was fought over states' rights. Once again, okay, that's fine. We're just going to have to agree to disagree. However, there's no dispute in the fact that slavery would have a major impact on the life of Bloody Bill Anderson, even though neither he nor his family were slave owners. I'll explain why. The war between the states did not just spontaneously happen. Tensions had been building for decades upon decades, going all the way back to the founding of the country. Even back then, those who were philosophically opposed to the institution of slavery kind of swept it under the rug and made concessions so as to prevent the brand new republic from splitting in two. Still, though, individual states began making moves very early on. Pennsylvania, for example, adopted a statute that provided for the freedom of every slave born after its enactment in 1780. The first state to officially abolish slavery outright was Massachusetts in 1783. We're talking almost 80 years before the Civil War would begin. See what I mean about things slowly building up over time? New Hampshire, Rhode Island, Connecticut, one by one, all the northern states began abolishing slavery. Now, granted, some of these states adopted a gradual approach to emancipation. States like New Jersey, who were limited to only owning slaves born before the year 1805. By 1860, there were still a total of 18 slaves in the Garden State. Now, they technically weren't listed as slaves, but as individuals indentured for life. Kind of messed up, but honestly, what else would you expect from the same state that gave us the Jersey Shore and Chelsea Handler? Now, despite New Jersey's less than perfect progress, they were still doing way more than any of the southern states, who, even by the year 1860, had made zero efforts when it came to abolishing slavery. Before long, you had a mix of slave states and free states. Almost in the same way, we now have red and blue states, both vying for control of the federal government. The country was also rapidly expanding, with more and more territories being admitted into the Union. Therefore, it became a big deal whether or not these would-be states were slave or free territories. In the year 1820, there was something called the Missouri Compromise. Basically, what had happened was, Maine was admitted to the Union as a free state, at the same time Missouri was admitted as a slave state. The compromise came in the form of legislation that was passed prohibiting slavery from any remaining territories in the Louisiana Purchase land north of the 3630 parallel. In other words, after the Missouri Compromise of 1820, all new states would be free states. But Josh, what the hell does any of this have to do with Bloody Bill Anderson? I'm getting there. Just simmer down. There was something else that happened called the Kansas-Nebraska Act that was passed by Congress and signed into law by President Pierce in 1854. This act and the idea of something called popular sovereignty pretty much repelled the Missouri Compromise that I just mentioned by saying that the citizens of the new territories like Nebraska and Kansas, where Bill lived, could decide for themselves whether or not they'd be free or slave states. Now, the Nebraska issue was already settled. Its population was staunchly anti-slavery. That left Kansas wide open as a big question mark, and as a result, both pro- and anti-slavery activists flooded into the territory 
with both sides hoping to turn the whole popular sovereignty thing to their advantage. As you can imagine, this led to a lot of conflict as the two factions traded blows. This ushered in what was called Bleeding Kansas, something that I have touched on previously in other episodes. Between the years of 1855 and 1859, at least 55 people were killed there in Kansas due to outbreaks of violence between these two factions. This is the same time that the abolitionist John Brown rose to prominence. He and his group actually dragged at least five men out of their homes and killed them. Now, he eventually would lead his failed raid on Harper's Ferry and get executed, which just kind of elevated him to martyr status among the anti-slavery faction. Eventually, Kansas ended up adopting a free state constitution, which led the pro-slavery forces in the U.S. Senate to deny them statehood. It wasn't until the southern states started succeeding that Kansas was finally admitted to the Union in 1861, just three months before the Civil War began. By the way, speaking of Kansas, according to Clint Eastwood, there's three types of sons in Kansas. Sunshine, sunflowers, and sons of bitches. Bonus points if you know what movie that's from. And don't forget about Missouri either. Missouri was a slave state, but its population, much like that of Kansas, was divided big time on the issue. And while the Confederate States of America would claim Missouri, the state did officially remain as part of the Union. Their Confederate government was actually living in exile in Texas, and over 100,000 Missourians answered the call to fight for the United States during the Civil War, as opposed to just around 40,000 who served in the Confederate Army. Missouri was a hotly contested border state, and as such, both the Union and Confederate armies maintained a presence there during the war. When it comes to them in Kansas, it was truly brother against brother and neighbor against neighbor. If there was a more divided area of the United States at this time, I'm not aware of it. It was amongst all of this craziness, all this political turmoil, this divisiveness over slavery, that our young Bill Anderson came of age. These were his formative years. And believe it or not, he didn't really exhibit any burning desire to go fight for one side or the other. At least not that I could find. Like I mentioned earlier, his family weren't slave owners. But one thing is for certain, Bill had quickly become a fan of making that dollar. Ever since he robbed, uh, I mean lost, that freight that he was supposed to deliver down to New Mexico. When Anderson finally decided to take up arms against the Union Army, he told his neighbors he was doing so for financial reasons rather than loyalty. According to an article I found on History.net, he once said to an acquaintance, quote, I don't care any more than you do for the South, but there's a lot of money in this business, end quote. Now, I don't know what he meant by this business or how he planned on making money by joining up with the Confederates, other than maybe he was planning on continuing his shady horse trading with them. Or he could have possibly had more nefarious ambitions, as there were guerrilla groups popping up all over the place, robbing civilians blind. And yes, I did find sources claiming that Bill Anderson and his brother did operate such a gang prior to any involvement with the Southern cause. One way or another, Bill Anderson, his brother Jim, and a family friend by the name of Arthur Ingram Baker, a.k.a. Judge A.I. Baker, all took to riding together. And at some point in 1861, possibly while en route to enlist in the Confederate Army, they were attacked by some Union soldiers. Now this Judge Baker guy was about 15 or so years older than Bill Anderson and a well-known and respected figure in that part of Kansas. He had been a territorial legislator, a judge, a postmaster, and even a justice of the peace. And he was a businessman as well, operating a store somewhere between Agnes City and Council Grove. And here's where things get a little confusing, but I'll keep it short and sweet. At some point, Judge Baker and the Andersons got crossways of each other. There's a whole lot of versions about what happened, but they all pretty much agree that at some point, Bill and Jim Anderson and their little group, along with Judge Baker, ended up getting attacked by some Union cavalrymen, like I just mentioned. Bill and his brother were able to escape, but the good judge was taken prisoner. 
And for whatever reason, the judge ended his association with the entire Anderson family shortly after being released by Union authorities. If he hadn't been an ardent abolitionist before being captured, he now was. Now, the theories as to why the judge and Bill Anderson had a falling out vary, ranging from the judge just simply choosing to distance himself from a suspected horse thief to Baker going so far as impregnating and then spurning Bill Anderson's 15-year-old sister, ditching her to go marry some other woman. Whatever happened, it would eventually lead to several killings. Shortly after Baker's marriage, somebody went on his property and stole a few horses. The judge was convinced that Bill was the culprit and filed a warrant for his arrest. This didn't sit too well with Bill's daddy, William. Remember him? He paid Barker a visit in May of 1862, shotgun in hand, and called the judge out. Baker responded by shooting William Anderson deader than hell. Oh boy, here we go. Finally getting all wild west up in Chia. Young Bill quickly buried his father and then temporarily fled the state. He'd return a little over a month later, though, and confront the judge. He and his brother Jim, along with two other men, surprised Baker at his store and opened up fire on him, forcing the judge to flee to the cellar. They then locked him inside that same cellar and set the store ablaze, attempted to burn the man to death, something they definitely would have accomplished had Baker not just gone ahead and taken his own life. Bill and his accomplices then stole the rest of Judge Baker's horses and rode east towards Missouri where they'd continue to do more robbing and killing if the stories told are to be believed. Okay, so that's one version. Another very different version from a guy named Paul R. Peterson, the author of the book Quantrill of Missouri, states that Bill's father was labeled as a Southern sympathizer, something that caused some Kansas Jayhawkers to pay him a visit one day while Bill and his brothers were gone. The Jayhawkers lynched William Anderson, stole the family's possessions, and burned the farm to the ground. Two days later, according to Mr. Peterson, Bill Anderson was riding with William Quantrill's guerrillas, saying, quote, I have chosen guerrilla warfare to revenge myself for wrongs that I could not honorably revenge otherwise. I lived in Kansas when this war commenced. Because I would not fight the people of Missouri, my native state, the Yankees sought my life but failed to get me. They revenged themselves by murdering my father and destroying my property. End quote. As you can see in this version, there's no mention of any Judge Baker. So which was it? You know, are the stories of Bill Anderson and his father being horse thieves just fabrication? Lies made up to discredit this son of the South and sully his good name? What about Judge Baker? We know he existed, and we know that Bill was blamed for his death. But did Anderson really kill him? If so, was he avenging his father or even his sister's honor? And how did Anderson's father really die? Is it true that if you don't use it, you'll lose it? So many questions! The end result was the same. Judge Baker was dead and Bill Anderson was in Missouri. From what I found, though, it does not appear that he immediately joined up with William Quantrill. Looks like he started his own gang and was actually rebuked by Quantrill after robbing some Southern sympathizers. And by rebuked, I mean that Quantrill took Anderson's horses and warned him that any further trouble would result in his prompt execution. This allegedly caused a little ill will and forced Anderson to avoid Quantrill's area of operations for a little bit at least until he finally joined up with the guerrilla leader sometime in early 1863. So, who the hell was this Quantrill guy? Well, I'm glad you asked. A native son of Ohio, just a few years older than Anderson, William Clark Quantrill had actually been a school teacher before the war, spent some time in Indiana, and then headed on to Kansas Territory at the age of 19, so around the year 1856, just when bleeding Kansas was really popping off. A couple of years later, Quantrill worked as a teamster for the Army a job that took him all the way west to Salt Lake City, where he developed a fondness for playing poker, as well as a little bit of stealing and killing. 
Eventually, he fled Utah after a warrant was issued for his arrest. Came back home to Kansas and started kind of going back and forth between teaching school and offering quote-unquote protection to farmers. Interestingly enough, Quantrill actually taught school in Lawrence, Kansas, a town we are definitely going to talk a little bit more about coming up here shortly. In the years leading up to the Civil War, it appears that William Quantrill changed his mind quite a bit as far as the politics of the day went. As a younger man, he opposed both slavery and the Democratic Party, going so far as saying that Democrats are, quote, the worst men we have, for they are all rascals. But by the year 1860, he had changed his thinking, proclaiming that slavery was a right and declaring his disdain for men like James H. Lane, a northern sympathizer whom he once highly respected. He also took to hunting down runaway slaves around this time. In 1861, Quantrill spent more time out west with a guy named Joel Brian Mays. Now, Mays was a mixed heritage man who ended up becoming a chief among the Cherokee. During the Civil War, Mr. Mays attained the rank of captain in the Cherokee Mounted Volunteers and ended up schooling Quantrill on guerrilla warfare tactics. Together with Mays and the Cherokee, William Quantrill served under Confederate General Sterling Price at the Battles of Lexington and Wilson's Creek, before heading on over to Missouri and forming his own group that had come to be known as Quantrill's Raiders. And this would be the group of fighters that Bloody Bill Anderson would join in 1863. In May of that same year, Quantrill, with Anderson in tow, led the Raiders in several attacks across the border to Kansas, where they held up and robbed a store a few miles outside of Council Grove, Anderson's old stomping grounds. They were pursued and confronted by a large posse, and while several of the Raiders were killed or captured, Anderson and Quantrill were both able to elude the pursuers, basically by splitting up into little groups and taking various routes back to Missouri. By the way, Bill Anderson was not initially very well liked among Quantrill's men, believe it or not. When he first arrived, the Raiders considered him a tad on the cocky side, and he was put under the direct command of George M. Todd. Now, this Todd guy, roughly the same age as Anderson, was originally from Canada, having moved to Kansas just a few years prior. And while his father was a respected man, George was said to have been sullen with a bad disposition, rarely speaking to anyone or having any close friends. People who knew him never truly understood why he took to ride it with Quantrill, as he had no grievances or wrongs to avenge, nor property to protect. Whatever his motivations, he quickly attained the rank of one of Quantrill's top lieutenants. But then again, so would Bill Anderson, who didn't waste no time climbing the ladder. Wasn't too long before he was conducting and organizing raids of his own. He, just like George Todd, was still operating under the umbrella of Quantrill's raiders, but would also have several fighters serving under him one of which was a dead-eyed 17-year-old killer by the name of Archie Clements. Another was a young man you may have heard of, a 19-year-old Frank James. And they, just like Quantrill and just like George Todd, were guerrilla warfighters, also commonly referred to as bushwhackers. And no, believe it or not, the bushwhackers were not an all-female bowling team, nor was it the name of a seedy lesbian bar. No, in all actuality, these so-called bushwhackers were kind of the southern 1860s version of the kids from that movie Red Dawn. Now, I know that's kind of a stretch, but it's the best analogy I can think of. Even though the bushwhackers were fighting on the side of the Confederacy, or at least claiming to, they weren't officially enlisted in any army, nor were they formally trained. But they would become lethally effective. I found a great definition for guerrilla warfare on the website CIA.gov, of all places. And I know I have at least one Special Forces guy listening, so uh, you can skip over this part, man. Pretty sure you've already got it covered. For the rest of us, the definition reads as follows. Paramilitary operations conducted in enemy-held territory by irregular forces, often groups indigenous to that territory. Lacking the numerical strength and weapons to oppose a regular army in the field, guerrillas avoid pitched battles. 
Instead, they operate from bases established in remote and inaccessible terrain, such as forests, mountains, and jungles, and depend on the support of the local inhabitants for recruits, food, shelter, and information. The guerrillas may also receive assistance in the form of arms, medical supplies, and military advisors from their own or allied regular armies. The tactics of guerrillas are those of harassment. Striking swiftly and unexpectedly, they raid enemy supply depots and installations, ambush patrols and supply convoys, and cut communication lines, hoping thereby to disrupt enemy activities and to capture equipment and supplies for their own use. Because of their mobility, the dispersal of their forces into small groups, and their ability to disappear among the civilian population, guerrillas are extremely difficult to capture. And there you have it. That about sums up Bloody Bill Anderson and Quantrill's Raiders to a T. These guys were not regular army. They didn't wear the gray uniform of the Confederacy or march onto the battlefield with fife players and a little drummer boy. They fought more like Native Americans. Quick raids, ambushes, get in, hit them hard, get the hell out. And they did have some very strong support among the local Missouri population. As such, they had plenty of hiding places. This support system also worked as extra eyes and ears for the raiders. Let them know exactly where the Union soldiers were located and what their movements were. The U.S. military quickly caught wind of this and started arresting civilian family members of known guerrillas. People they thought were aiding and abetting the enemy, including Bill Anderson's sisters. These young ladies were thrown inside a rackety-ass three-story building in Kansas City, along with a whole lot of other suspected female spies, and the building collapsed, killing one of Bloody Bill's sisters, Josephine. She was just 14 years old. Bill's other two sisters, Mary Ellen, age 16, and Janie, age 10, were severely injured as well. Now, officially, this was an accident. The soldiers, to make more room, had removed some posts that the center girder, supporting the second floor, rested on. Needless to say, the building then began to sag and cracks started to form. Instead of, uh, oh, I don't know, maybe evacuating all the damn little girls being held prisoner there, some genius instead decided just to send a soldier over to inspect it which supposedly is what he was doing when the building collapsed. Fun fact, the building once stood on Grand Boulevard between 14th and 15th Streets in Kansas City, where the Sprint Center now stands. I happened to check out the upcoming events at the Sprint Center, and it looks like if you act now, you can still buy tickets to see Justin Bieber perform there on June 16th. Now I don't know which is worse, being an orphan political prisoner at the age of 14 and dying because some old-ass building collapses on you, or having to spend eternity haunting a building full of Justin Bieber fans. Either way, I think it goes without saying that Bloody Bill and the rest of the Raiders didn't much believe in accidents. They felt like the building was purposely destroyed by the hated Kansas Jayhawkers. And make no mistake about it, whatever Bill Anderson's original reasons for joining up with Quantrill, whether it was to avenge his father or not, there was now no doubt at all. He would be fueled from this moment forward by the urge to avenge his sisters. As far as the Kansas Jayhawkers go, in case you're not familiar, they were basically doing the same thing as Quantrill's Raiders, only in the name of the Union. The term Jayhawkers was initially a nickname for the 7th Regiment Kansas Volunteer Cavalry, but over time it became a blanket term used to describe any Union troops from Kansas who were operating in Missouri, especially the ones conducting so-called punitive operations against civilians, like Bloody Bill's sisters. These Jayhawkers did their fair share of looting and pillaging and burning and killing. You're probably familiar with the raid on Lawrence, Kansas, which we're getting to very shortly. Well, the Jayhawkers did pretty much the same thing to the town of Osceola, Missouri, in September of 1861, just on a lesser scale. It was an unsanctioned attack that saw the town burned down and nine of its citizens executed. 
By the way, man, the poor civilians in Missouri really took a beating during the Civil War. I'll touch more on this throughout this episode, but whew, I know there were horrible things that happened elsewhere, like Sherman's March to the Sea, but I can't help but think you just did not want to live in Missouri during this time. Another by the way, I'm going to reference the movie The Outlaw Josie Wells a few times. If you haven't seen it already, well, that's on you. You've had over 40 years, buddy. So, you know, consider this a spoiler alert. Clint Eastwood plays as Josie Wells, a member of Quantrill's Raiders. Matter of fact, Bloody Bill Anderson even has a role in this movie, portrayed by John Russell, who in typical Hollywood fashion was 55 years old, playing a damn 20-year-old. No big deal, though. It was just a tiny, tiny little part. Anyway, in the movie, Josie Wells' arch enemies are these guys called the Red Legs. In real life, depending on who you ask, the Red Legs were a secret Union military society numbering at around 100 men and organized in late 1862 by General Thomas Ewing and James Blunt for, quote, desperate service along the border. They were not the same thing as the Jayhawkers, but both groups are sometimes lumped in together. Not that it mattered to Bloody Bill Anderson. Jayhawker, red leg, or just plain old blue-bellied Yankee, he'd be more than happy to kill them all just the same. This was especially true after Bill's sister was killed. Her death and the imprisonment of the other civilian women was actually one of the main motivators for Quantrill and his men to attack the Kansas abolitionist town of Lawrence. Icing on top of the cake was that Lawrence was also home to James H. Lane, the man who I mentioned earlier that Quantrill had once greatly admired. Now, I have to confess that I had never heard of Lane before researching this episode. His name popped up so much that I feel like I should mention him at least briefly. James Henry Lane was a veteran of the Mexican-American War who would go on to become a Union general and senator. And he was also a militia leader there in Kansas, commanding a brigade of Jayhawkers known as Lane's Brigade. The great pathfinder General John Fremont and friend of Kit Carson ordered Lane to, quote, make a demonstration along the Kansas-Missouri border, an order that Lane carried out by pillaging and burning. It was he and his men who sacked Osceola. Before that, they burned down the village of Morristown. Once again, the outlaw Josie Wells. Remember at the very beginning when Josie's farm is burned down and his family gets killed? This was a portrayal of Lane's attack on Missourians. James Lane is also mentioned in the vastly underrated 1999 movie, Ride with the Devil. Anyway, it wasn't just the Southern sympathizers who had a problem with General Lane. His own commanders recognized that he was doing more harm than good. That for every house that Lane burned down, he was just turning more and more people against the Union. People like Bloody Bill Anderson. So the attack on Lawrence was several things. It was revenge for the sisters of Anderson and all the other civilians targeted by the Jayhawkers. By the way, Bill was not the only one of Quantrill's raiders who lost a loved one when that building collapsed. Lawrence was also revenge for the sacking of Osceola and all those farms that Lane and his men destroyed. And finally, it was a targeted attack to kill Lane himself. Also, you know, maybe, just maybe, the raiders could do a little bit of pillaging of their own. Okay. So it was that at the ass crack of dawn on August 21st, 1863, that upwards of 400 guerrilla fighters under Quantrill and Anderson descended upon Lawrence, Kansas, like something out of the Book of Revelations. According to John McCorkle, who rode with the Raiders that day, the order was given to shoot every soldier they saw, but not to harm any women or children. Mr. McCorkle also said, quote, A few innocent men may have been killed, but that was not intentional. End quote. One of the first victims was the Reverend Snyder. The raiders caught the minister milking his cow and shot him dead. The townspeople of Lawrence sought refuge where they could. Some, like General Lane, fleeing into nearby fields or ravines. Others taking shelter in root cellars. In almost no time flat, the town was all but destroyed. The bushwhackers ransacked homes, burned down nearly every business, 
looted and stole what they could and killed over 150 men and boys. All total, approximately 20% of the male population of Lawrence was killed. And as Quantrill's raiders rode out of town, they left 85 widows behind in their wake. As for Bloody Bill, he was credited with killing 14 people that day, some of which were begging for their lives. His only hint of humanity came when he spared a woman's house after she pleaded with him not to burn it down. And to be fair, I have read some sources that claim that not all of Quantrill's men took part in the indiscriminate killing. That some even stood in front of homes where people were hiding, protecting them. I don't know if this is true or not, but I wouldn't be surprised. You know, it's one thing to sign on to kill red legs and Yankee soldiers, but what happened in Lawrence wasn't that. Eventually, Union forces appeared in the distance, and the bushwhackers did what they usually did under such circumstances. The frontier version of dropping that ninja smoke bomb and disappearing. They split up and dispersed in all directions. The only way the Yankees could effectively pursue them was if they too divided their forces. Not a smart thing to do unless you feel like getting your ass ambushed. Only one raider was killed during this entire ordeal, by the way. And he was just a straggler, not having left when all the others did. Where it is that after he was killed, his scalp was taken. A practice the bushwhackers under Bloody Bill Anderson would soon adopt. The Lawrence Massacre, as it would become known, led to the issuance of General Order Number 11. This directive forced the evacuation of everyone in four counties in western Missouri, no matter their allegiance. If you could prove that you were loyal to the Union, you could stay in the general area, but you still had to abandon your home and take shelter in a nearby designated military outpost. Those who couldn't or wouldn't prove their loyalty just had to get the hell out. This was the largest forced removal of Americans until the internment of Japanese Americans in World War II. Now what this ordinance was supposed to do was deprive Quantrill and Anderson's raiders of all the local support that they relied upon to elude the Union forces. But y'all know how that pesky little law of unintended consequences likes to rear its ugly head. This order went into effect at the end of August 1863 and was repelled five months later when General Thomas Ewing was replaced. But so many people were negatively affected that if they didn't support the guerrillas before, they damn sure did now. Not only were they displaced, but their abandoned homes were pillaged. General Ewing, although he ordered his troops not to, was ultimately unable to stop them from looting and burning down all those homes. This affected thousands of civilians. Famed artist George Bingham would say of Order 11, quote, It is well known that men were shot down in the very act of obeying the order, and their wagons and effects seized by their murderers. Large trains of wagons, extending over the prairies for miles in length and moving towards Kansas, were freighted with every description of household furniture and wearing apparel belonging to the exiled inhabitants. Dense columns of smoke arising in every direction marked the conflagrations of dwellings, many of the evidence of which are yet to be seen in the remains of seared and blackened chimneys, standing as melancholy monuments of a ruthless military despotism which spared neither age, sex, character, nor condition. There was neither aid nor protection afforded to the banished inhabitants by the heartless authority which expelled them from their rightful possessions. They crowded by hundreds upon the banks of the Missouri River and were indebted to the charity of benevolent steamboat conductors for transportation to places of safety where friendly aid could be extended to them without danger to those who ventured to contribute it. End quote. That's some scorched earth type stuff right there. And ultimately, it's a toss up as to whether or not it did any good. I mean, there damn sure weren't any more raids on the scale of Lawrence after this. And it's probably what caused Quantrill's raiders to head to their winter hideouts in Texas a little earlier than normal that year. But at what price? How many rebels were created by Order Number 11? How many innocent people suffered and just lost everything? By the way, this wasn't the only Order Number 11 issued during the Civil War. General Grant issued one as well, ordering all Jewish people out of the Department of Tennessee. 
And I'm not joking. From the Mississippi River all the way to the Tennessee River, Jews were banned under the threat of imprisonment. Eventually, President Lincoln himself got involved and revoked the order. I don't know about y'all, but I'm learning all kinds of interesting shit doing this podcast. Anyway, the bushwhackers would pause briefly on their way to Texas to harass some Union forces at Fort Blair, Kansas. Their initial attack didn't do much damage, but the guerrillas were able to surprise another group of soldiers headed to the fort and kill about 100 of them. Now, Bloody Bill and his men were at the rear of this attack, but that didn't stop them from plundering the bodies of all the dead soldiers they came upon. Their bloodlust not yet satisfied, they wanted to make another go at the fort, but Quantrill nixed that idea. An action that angered Bill. Not the first time he and the leader of the Raiders would disagree, nor would it be the last. The men set up their winter quarters in Mineral Springs Creek, about 15 miles northwest of Sherman, Texas, within spitting distance of the Red River and Indian Territory. And I didn't know this previously, but it looks like these Raiders may have acted as a police force of sorts against cattle thieves who came down out of the territory and raided farms and ranches. Which does kind of make sense. They needed the local citizens there to be on their side. And the locals would have been suffering from a lack of fighting aged men due to the war. So they needed somebody to help them keep the peace. They were probably ecstatic to have the Raiders there for the winter, so long as they behaved themselves. A possibly unrealistic expectation. Quantrill had also had the good sense to report to the proper Confederate authorities and offer up his services. He met with General Henry McCulloch and was soon tasked with helping to round up draft dodgers and deserters. Only problem was that Quantrill's men weren't used to taking prisoners. Instead of rounding up the derelicts, they just simply executed them. Suffice it to say that Quantrill's raiders were no longer asked to do such duties, instead being used on occasion to chase after Comanches. As far as Bloody Bill Anderson goes, he was busy falling in love around this time. Ah, Cupid Sparrow. Funny little bird, but he gets the job done. Bill ended up getting married to a Sherman gal named Bush Smith. Weird name, I know, and the more I looked into Miss Smith, the weirder the whole thing got. Her actual full name may have possibly been Mary Irwin Bush Smith. Some sources claim she was a prostitute, while others state that she was a fine, upstanding member of the Methodist Church. To which I propose that these two are not mutually exclusive. And the mystery of Bush Smith will only deepen even after Bloody Bill is gone, and we'll get more into that later. The lovebirds ended up tying the knot in early March of 1864, and lived together very briefly before Anderson would head back to fighting Yankees. Now supposedly him getting married didn't sit too well with William Quantrill. Why, I do not know. I think tension between he and Bill had just been building ever since they first met back in Missouri, before Anderson was ever even a member of the Raiders. As Bill's status began to rise, so did, it seems, his desire to be Quantrill's equal. Regardless of the why of the matter, this rift would continue to grow until Bloody Bill finally took his men, the ones loyal to him, and parted company with Quantrill. How much of this had to do with the wedding, I don't know. I do know that things got so prickly that at one point there was fear of gunplay between the two factions until cooler heads finally prevailed, at least temporarily. The trouble brewing between these two guerrilla leaders just would not die down, though. Eventually, one of Anderson's men was accused of stealing from one of Quantrill's raiders. The alleged thief was banished and told to stay gone. Well, he didn't. Came back and got himself shot and killed. General rule of thumb to follow is uh, when a hair-triggered bushwhacker hardened by months of border warfare tells you to stay gone. Just fucking stay gone. Now this killing ticked Anderson off. He might have even taken it as a personal affront. Sort of an insult. If his man needed dealing with, then maybe Quantrill should have let him, Anderson, handle things. Instead, Quantrill took care of it himself. This may have made Bloody Bill look weak to his men, forcing his hand. Either way, it was the straw that broke the Confederates back. That boil of a grudge that had been simmering ever since Quantrill scolded him back in Missouri in the early days of the war. 
finally came to a head. Bill Anderson took some men and headed into Sherman and snitched on Quantrill. He told a General Cooper of the Army that the guerrilla leader had murdered a Confederate officer. Cooper, in turn, had Quantrill arrested. Okay, here we go. Things starting to heat up now. By the way, it should be noted that by this point, the bushwhackers have begun to wear out their welcome there in Texas. There had already been several incidents where civilians living there in Grayson County, where Sherman is located, and neighboring Fannin County, were targeted by the Kansas and Missouri ruffians. So much so that even before Quantrill was arrested, regular Confederate troops had been assigned to protect the area's citizens. Now, being the accomplished sneak attack guerrilla fighter that he was, Quantrill would not stay captured for long. Matter of fact, he escaped the same damn day he was arrested. And guess who the Confederates sent to hunt him down? Our very own Bloody Bill Anderson, the student hunting the teacher. Quantrill still had men loyal to him, though. And these men did engage with Anderson's men, sort of a civil war inside of a civil war allowing Quantrill to make it safely back to Missouri. As far as the remaining Raiders go, they chose the sullen George Todd as their new leader. Long story short, what was once known as Quantrill's Raiders was effectively broken up into three separate groups, led by Bill Anderson, Todd, and Quantrill. Whereas Anderson and Todd were formerly Quantrill's lieutenants, they were now their own independent guerrilla leaders. Although the three organizations would work together in the future, despite the tension. You know, the enemy of my enemy or some such shit. Wasn't too long before Bloody Bill Anderson and his merry band of bushwhackers headed back to Missouri. After all, they did have a war to fight and civilians to rob. If you didn't get robbed by either the Jayhawkers or Anderson's bushwhackers in 1860s Missouri, do you even Missouri, bro? Now, I don't know exactly when it was that people took to calling William T. Anderson Bloody Bill, but if he didn't earn that moniker during the Lawrence Raid, he damn sure earned it during the summer of 1864 as he and his men ambushed and raided and scalped their way all across central Missouri. In June of that year, Anderson and about 50 of his men killed a dozen Missouri state militia troops. The next day, they killed nine members of the Union Missouri Cavalry. By the way, Bloody Bill and his crew would don Yankee uniforms during these ambushes. This is something they had been doing for quite some time, and it allowed them to get in close without scaring the Union troops. It got so bad that the U.S. military developed hand signals they could use to flash to one another just to make sure they were being approached by allies. Anderson and his men would learn these signals, however, and just keep on killing. And it wasn't just the Jayhawkers and the Union troops that got killed. If you were just a plain old Union sympathizer, that was enough to make you a marked man. And I gotta wonder how much proof they needed before they pulled that trigger. I'm thinking not too much. At some point around this time, Anderson took to calling himself commander of the Kansas 1st Guerrillas and writing pithy little letters to local newspapers. Now, I'm not just going to out and out say that Bill Anderson was a sociopath. He was a young man caught up in the hell of war. I get that. And obviously, just killing people isn't always a sign of mental illness. But writing to a newspaper, however, almost always is. On July 15, 1864, Anderson led his men into Huntsville, Missouri, and robbed the town's depository of over $40,000, roughly the equivalent of $670,000 in today's money. And this tells me two things. One, if my broke ass took all the money I have and went back in time to 1864, I'd still be broke. And two, Anderson, as much robbing and looting as he and his men did, wasn't just in it for the money. With all that money, he could have taken a few of his men and split, headed west or even down to South America with that new bride of his. It wasn't enough for them to live off of forever, but it was enough to get them established somewhere else, maybe start over. That wouldn't be. Bloody Bill Anderson, for whatever reason, had become a true believer in the cause. And I guess his cause was killing Jayhawkers and anybody else he could find who supported him. Before too long, Anderson soon emerged as one of the most well-known and feared guerrilla leaders there in the border country. According to some, even eclipsing Quantrell and Todd, 
Even the newspapers began labeling Bill as the devil himself, which I'm sure earned them a very strongly worded letter to the editor. Now all this attention didn't hurt none when Bloody Bill went to recruit new blood to fill his ranks. If you're going to join up with the gorillas, you're going to join up with the ones with the baddest reputation, right? And that's just what a young man named Jesse James did. Yep, the not-quite-17-year-old Jesse James joined up with his brother Frank, who was already riding with Anderson. In late July, Anderson's forces continued doing their thug thing, striking the towns of Rennick and Allen, Missouri, looting and tearing down telegraph poles and killing Union horses. Real guerrilla war-type shit. On July 24th, the group killed two Illinois cavalrymen, and Anderson himself left a note on their bodies reading, quote, You come to hunt bushwhackers? Now you are scalped. And he was being hunted, by the way. In just the first three weeks of July alone, a Union General Benson Brown sent out 200 separate patrols. And some of them were successful, killing somewhere around 100 bushwhackers. It came at a price, though. They themselves lost men every time they engaged the guerrillas. Make no mistake about it, when pressed, these young killers fought just like cornered animals. On the 30th of July, just a few days after Anderson left that note on those scalp soldiers, he and his men kidnapped the elderly father of a Union militiaman. They tortured the old man nearly to death before letting him go. And at this point, when it comes to Bloody Bill, you're going to start seeing things just progressively getting darker. That facade of being a southern gentleman is starting to slowly fade under the horrors of war. Just a few days later, things would escalate further as Anderson and some of his men took refuge at a home occupied solely by women. These ladies fed Bloody Bill and his group, but some Union soldiers decided to show up and crash the dinner party. In the ensuing battle, Anderson himself shot and killed one of the women as she attempted to flee the house. Now say what you will about Bloody Bill's guerrillas, but they didn't take too kindly when it came to killing women. At least not white women. And they straight up let Anderson know that what he did was uncalled for. A rebuke that he sort of brushed off, claiming that it was just an inevitability of war. Further evidence of him more fully embracing the darkness. And it wasn't just him. You know, by this point, his men were even mutilating their dead enemies and torturing the rare prisoners they took. They also began decorating their horses with the scalps of the dead. And, of course, they continued skirmishing with Union forces. By August of 1864, those same papers that once referred to Bloody Bill as the devil himself now took to calling him a heartless scoundrel and an incarnate fiend. What they didn't call him was a damn river pirate. But they should have because that's exactly what he became, for a very short period of time at least. Anderson attacked a dang steamboat on the Missouri River, killed its captain, and took the ship over, using it to attack other boats and just flat out disrupt all traffic on the river. Once back on dry ground, Anderson would hook back up with William Clark Quantrill. The two men passed things up, or at least pretended to, long enough to make a failed raid into Fayette, Missouri in September of 1864. Now, Bloody Bill had already been collaborating a little with George Todd and other lesser-known bushwhacker leaders like John Thrakel and Clifton Holtzclaw. In August, a bunch of them had attacked a wagon train and killed 15 Federals, three of which were black soldiers, whose bodies they made it a special point to burn. I guess it offended them seeing the freed black men wearing uniforms. And before you start emailing me, yes, I know there were some black men who rode with Quantrill and his raiders. As far as Fayette, Missouri goes, it was the home base of the Union Army's 9th Missouri Cavalry, and they were really dug in there in Fayette. But still, Bloody Bill was determined. He led charge after unsuccessful charge that saw only two Union troops killed and multiple dead bushwhackers before the attack was finally abandoned. Possibly due to Bill's fervent insistence on this botched raid, the other guerrilla leaders decide just to part ways with the man once again. The debacle at Fayette is considered Bloody Bill's greatest failure as a leader. Which is interesting because it was quickly followed by one of his single greatest victories. 
On September 27, 1864, Anderson and about 75 of his men decided to gallop on over to Centralia, Missouri and see if they couldn't do a little bit of looting. Because why not? You know, they earned it. These men had been selflessly fighting for the cause for years now and, you know, needed to blow off a little steam and terrorize some civilians. Uh, no, but I can't help but think that some of them might have felt that way. And it just so happened that Centralia did have a large store of whiskey, which Anderson and his men decided to tap into. They took them a break from all that pillaging and just chilled out in the Centralia Hotel lobby and got drunker than Cooter Brown. Just so happened that as they was drinking, a stagecoach arrived, containing two prominent Union loyalists. One a sheriff and the other a dang congressman. Now these two guys got lucky. The bushwhackers didn't know their identity, so instead of killing them and scalping them, they just robbed them. The next arrivals to Centralia wouldn't be so lucky. Just as they were wrapping up robbing that stagecoach, a train pulled into town. Now this was a Union passenger train that contained 23 off-duty and unarmed Union soldiers. Per usual, Anderson allegedly ordered the women on the train to remain untouched as he and his men robbed all the rest of the passengers. He then had the soldiers lined up and executed, all except for one man, a sergeant. He was spared for a potential future prisoner swap. A very unlucky German civilian, a train passenger who just happened to be wearing a blue shirt that day, was killed along with all the soldiers. Bet y'all didn't know people were getting killed over gang colors back in 1860s rural Missouri. After the soldiers were murdered, the train was set on fire and an approaching freight train was derailed. The civilians were released, but under strict orders not to put out any fires or move the bodies of the dead soldiers. And just like that, Anderson and his men departed, whiskey drunk and weighted down by over 20 Union scalps and $9,000 worth of ill-gotten money they stole from Centralia. Important to note that both Frank and Jesse James were present for this incident. And at least one account I found stated that Frank allegedly discovered $13,000 in the train's mail car. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but I think it's safe to assume that the James brothers learned themselves a little something about train robbery that day. By the way, it had been less than a month since Jesse had celebrated his 17th birthday. That's crazy to think about. When I was his age, I was just starting my senior year of high school. Hadn't even kissed a girl yet. And here he is, just uh, participated in a war crime. Bloody Bill Anderson and the boys may have left Centralia, but the day's fighting weren't over yet. Not by a long shot. That afternoon, a detachment of the 39th Missouri Volunteer Mounted Infantry, under a Major Johnston, arrived at Centralia and found out what happened. They went hunting Anderson, and it was their misfortune to catch up to him. What followed was a pure slaughter. Bloody Bill and his men swarmed the Missouri Volunteers from three sides, and when the smoke cleared, 125 Union soldiers lay dead. Bloody Bill's most decisive victory to date. And one thing worth pointing out is how heavily armed Anderson and his men were. They fought while mounted on their horses and found it much easier to wield a revolver while in the saddle rather than a rifle. And since they fought hard and fast, they didn't have time to reload. This meant that each of the guerrillas would have several revolvers on them. According to bushwhacker William R. Stewart, who was there for this fight against Major Johnston, quote, We killed most of them. That was because we were armed so much better than the Federals. Each of us had from six to eight pistols, while the Union soldiers carried only powder and ball muskets. Basically, while the men of the 39th were fixing their bayonets and attempting to reload their single-shot muskets, Bloody Bill Anderson and his bushwhackers just ran straight over them. An accomplishment that caused him to start calling himself Colonel Anderson. And I kind of like that. I think once I start getting like 5,000 downloads per episode, I'm going to start calling myself Colonel Josh. Anyhow, many of the dead soldiers were scalped, just more grim trophies for the guerrillas to hang from their war horses. 
By the way, according to Frank James, it was his brother, young Jesse, who fired the shot that killed Major Johnston. Or shots, I should say. Jesse's first ball caught the Major in the side, bringing the officer to the ground. For the finishing touch, Jesse just leaned over in his saddle and put one square in Johnston's head. Story goes that Jesse James would go on to kill eight more men that day before the fighting was over. 17 years old. And this ambush would lead to several revenge killings. Outraged Union soldiers began retaliating against Southern sympathizing civilians, killing them the same way that Anderson and his men killed Northern sympathizers. They even went so far as to burn down the guerrilla-friendly town of Rocheport. Air quotes on accident. An event that Bloody Bill allegedly watched from a nearby bluff. As Rocheport burned, so did Bill's hatred for the Union, or so legend goes. Once again, I think of that movie Red Dawn. Remember that one character Robert Carvin notches in his gun? And that downed Air Force pilot tells him, All that hate's gonna burn you up, kid. And then he replies, It keeps me warm. And then he does that cool little flip with his switchblade. Oh, I love that movie. And I feel like I need to say, Anytime I refer to Red Dawn, I am referring to the one and only original from 1984. Not that embarrassing abomination of a remake that they try to pull off. Back to the story. By October of 1864, Bloody Bill Anderson met up with General Sterling Price yet again. A somewhat awkward meeting. Price was disgusted by Bloody Bill's actions as well as the scalps that decorated he and his men's horses. But at the same time, the general was fighting a war and he felt like he needed Anderson. Sometimes I guess it pays to have somebody who's lacking in the scruples department. General Price ended up promoting Bill to the rank of captain and ordered him to keep disrupting Missouri railroad traffic. An order that Anderson pretty much just ignored as he and his men continued looting. At one point, he rode into a Confederate army camp that had some wounded Union prisoners. Bill decided he'd send them to an early grave, but he was stopped short by some rebel doctors. You know, gotta wonder how these doctors were able to keep their humanity during this war. You would think they'd be just as jaded, if not more so, than the guerrillas, just constantly surrounded by dead and dying men. Yet these Confederate doctors did the honorable thing, protected their prisoners, even though they were their enemies, from falling into the hands of Anderson and his killers. I think that's admirable, no matter which side you're on. Shortly thereafter, Anderson and his men would head to Glasgow, Missouri to do some good old-fashioned pillaging. Because why not? Whilst in town, Bill paid a visit to a certain Benjamin Lewis, Glasgow's wealthiest citizen. Now, Lewis had the audacity to actually free his own slaves, something that Bloody Bill did not care for at all. Decided to teach the man a lesson by beating the living hell out of him, trampling him with a horse, and then stealing all of his money. Still not satisfied, Anderson would then go on to rape Lewis's servant, a 12-year-old black girl. Before everything was said and done, Anderson and his men killed several more citizens of Glasgow, Union sympathizers, they called them, and returned to Benjamin Lewis's home to rape a few more of the rich man's freed servants. I guess the distinction here is that these women were not white. Therefore, they weren't offered the same reverent respect as the other women that the guerrillas normally left unmolested. And yes, Benjamin Lewis would die the next day from his wounds. If you're paying attention here, you're going to notice this steady decline in humanity. The killings have only increased, and so is the casualness of it all. Scalping and the tortures to just out-and-out raping black women. Now, according to history professor and author Matthew T. Holbert, quote, Critics of Anderson's guerrilla career frequently depict him as having been a glorified cutthroat, delusional, paranoid, and even as a full-fledged sociopath. Others point to the dehumanizing effects of guerrilla warfare as an explanation for Anderson's wartime exploits. They pose it that he was not the only guerrilla gradually transformed by his Civil War experience and should therefore not be viewed as exceptionally or uniquely deranged. Okay, fair enough. War is hell. 
You know, there were men like Bloody Bill Anderson centuries before the Civil War, and there's going to be men like him long after I'm in the dirt. I just feel like Anderson and his guerrillas should kind of be a warning. And not just them, but the Jayhawkers as well. A warning that war should be avoided at all costs. Once we get that ball rolling, it's hard to stop what follows, as you can see with Bloody Bill Anderson. As for him, his time on this earth was quickly coming to an end. Following the attack on Glasgow, a Union lieutenant colonel named Samuel P. Cox was assigned to track down the guerrilla leader with a force of specially trained, experienced troops. And he did just that on October 26, 1864. What followed is sometimes referred to as the skirmish at Albany. Unfortunately, I had a hard time piecing together exactly what happened. What we know for certainty is that Bloody Bill and his men were camped just outside of Albany, Missouri, when Colonel Cox caught up with them. I've read that Anderson was commanding about 300 guerrillas at this time. I also read that he only had 80 men under his charge that day. Yet another account claims 150. As for Colonel Cox, it's equally as confusing. One source said he's the one with 150 troops. Another claims over twice that many with 350 troops. I've also read that they may have lured Anderson's men into an ambush, the same way that Bloody Bill had done so many times in the past, by sending out a small patrol as bait. It looks like it is possible that the guerrilla Bloody Bill Anderson got himself out guerrillaed. Whatever the exact details, once the two sides started fighting, the violence soon spilled over into the streets of Albany. At some point, Anderson rallied his troops and led them in a charge, but they were turned back due to overwhelming firepower. Finally, two lone men broke from the ranks of the guerrillas and charged headlong into Union lines. These men were John Raines, son of Confederate General James S. Raines, and the man of the hour, Bloody Bill's own damn self. What possessed these two fighters to undertake what I think most of us would consider a suicide mission? I don't know. As one writer put it, it was either an act of reckless bravery or desperation. And believe it or not, the rebel duo were successful in breaking through the Union lines. A very short-lived victory, as seconds later, Bloody Bill Anderson would drop from his saddle with two mini balls shot from a Springfield musket lodged in his skull. Dead before he hit the ground, at just 25 years of age. As soon as Bill was identified as the dead man, his body was transported about 90 miles south and paraded through the streets of Richmond, Missouri. They took pictures, and yes, there is a picture of a dead Bill Anderson online if you look for it. He's wearing his fancy ornate guerrilla warfighter shirt, gotta get me one of those, with his revolver clutched in his lifeless hands. As people were wont to do back in those days, they did prop Bloody Bill up outside the local courthouse so that folks could walk by and gawk at him. He was eventually buried in a field outside of Richmond, but not before one of his fingers was cut off to remove a ring. Looks like the Union troops weren't above doing a little bit of looting dead bodies either. Supposedly, I don't know how true this is, but supposedly a cord of silk with knots tied on it was also found on Bill's body. These knots, numbering 53, were said to symbolize all the men that Anderson killed. Now y'all know me, I'm normally on the skeptical side when I do these episodes, at least when it comes to body counts. I think most of the deadly men of the West, as deadly as they were, still greatly exaggerated how many people they killed. I do not think this is the case with Bloody Bill Anderson. I'm actually surprised his count isn't higher than 53. I've covered a lot of killers on this podcast. John Wesley Harden, Tom Horn, Clay Allison, Deacon Jim Miller. Out of all these guys, I find Bloody Bill Anderson as to be the scariest of the bunch by far. Now, I'm not entirely sure why that is. I think they all suffer from dead souls. There's just something about Bloody Bill that gives me the creeps. His ruthlessness made him one of the most feared of all the guerrilla warfighters of Missouri and Kansas. He taught other notorious killers like the James Brothers and Cole Younger how to kill. 
Anderson claimed that he was doing everything out of revenge, but that noble cause quickly disintegrated into raping and stealing from civilians. Still, though, he is considered by some even to this day as being a hero. What do y'all think? Hero or villain? I lean more towards team villain. I'm sure under the right circumstances, Bill Anderson would have been a perfect Southern gentleman. And I do understand that his life was brutally affected by the war. He was driven by revenge, much in the same way that the James boys would seek revenge after the Pinkertons killed their little brother and blew their mother's arm off. But I also do have the controversial viewpoint that war is never an excuse to go around raping and indiscriminately murdering who you please. A lot of people go to war. The vast majority don't resort to rape and murder. But I don't know. Once again, what do y'all think? Hit me up at bloodybeaverpodcast at gmail.com and let me know. Or head on over to bloodybeaver.com and hit that contact button. I am kind of curious to see how this episode is received. Believe it or not, that guy that made the suicide charge with the Anderson, John Raines, actually survived. He made it back safely to the gorillas and escaped with them. As for Lieutenant Colonel Samuel P. Cox, he would become somewhat of a national hero after the war was over. And he moved back home to Gatlin, Missouri which just so happens to be the location of one of the first James Gang bank robberies. And get this, they not only knew that Colonel Cox lived there, but they thought they killed him. Jesse James mistook bank president John Sheets as Cox and gunned the man down, avenging, or at least he thought, his old mentor Bloody Bill. He wouldn't find out until later that he killed the wrong man, and Sam Cox lived to the ripe old age of 85, dying in 1913. Following Bloody Bill's death, his trusted lieutenant, Archie Clements, took over as the leader of the remaining guerrillas. Little Arch, as he was called, only stood five foot tall and weighed 140 pounds. That was 140 pounds of pure killer. Now, a lot of Bloody Bill's men would either go on to just rejoin William Quantrill or just head home, as it was becoming clear to everybody that the Confederacy was lost by this point. Archie Clements, however, would never surrender. He fought on even after the war ended although the lines between fighting and bank robbery were soon blurred. He and his gang began striking union-owned banks, a practice that the James gang would continue. Finally, Little Arch met his end in Lexington, Missouri in 1866. He was drinking when he got approached with an arrest warrant and was told to surrender. He answered this request by drawing his revolvers and fighting like a wild man. He was shot through the chest but still managed to get on his horse and race through town before finally being blown out of the saddle. As a detachment of militia approached the dying Clements, he was still trying to fight, attempted to cock his revolver using his teeth. His dying words were, I've done what I always said I'd do, die before I surrender. He was right around 21 years of age. George M. Todd, William Quantrill's once upon a time second in command, was killed during the Battle of Little Blue River in October of 1864, just five days before Bloody Bill was killed. Todd was barely 25 years old at the time of his death. As for William Clark Quantrill, he at one point concocted a plan to lead a company of men to Washington, D.C. and assassinate President Lincoln. When this didn't come to fruition, he continued raiding into Missouri, oftentimes crossing over into Kentucky. And that's where the Union troops found him, a full month after General Robert E. Lee surrendered to Grant. He and his band got ambushed, and while trying to escape, William Clark Quantrill was shot in the back and paralyzed from the waist down. But still alive. He was brought by wagon to Louisville, Kentucky, where he would die of his wounds less than a month later. He was just 27 years old. Now, Bloody Bill's brother Jim survived the war and headed back down to Texas, where he may have married Bill's widow, Bush Smith. Remember her? Now, that's a rabbit hole I'll leave for all y'all to go down if you're interested. Once again, a lot of mystery surrounding this Bush Smith lady, if that was even her real name. She may have been pregnant with Bloody Bill's child when he departed Texas, never to return. 
and she may have married Jim Anderson following the war. Even Jim's death is pretty mysterious. We know for sure that he did move to Texas with his sisters, where he possibly conspired with Jesse James to murder one of their former guerrilla brothers-in-arms, a guy named Ike Flannery, in order to steal the man's inheritance. In retaliation, another former guerrilla, George Shepard, who just so happened to be Flannery's uncle, caught up with Jim Anderson in Austin, Texas, and cut his throat, right there at the state capitol building in front of God and everyone. Now, as far as I know, this has not been proven. I've also read that Jim wasn't killed at the Capitol building in Austin, but instead at the courthouse in Sherman, Texas. He probably did die in 1871, but as far as I can tell, nobody knows for 100% sure how he died, who, if anybody killed him, or even where he's buried. 44 years after the death of Bloody Bill, one of his protégés, Cole Younger, would have his body reburied in the old Pioneer Cemetery in Richmond, Missouri. I found this kind of interesting because first Jesse tried to avenge Bloody Bill's death, and then decades later, Cole Younger has his old leader reinterred. By all accounts, the men under Bloody Bill Anderson's command highly respected him. Once again, proving the theory that real recognize real, even if you're just talking about killers. And of course, it wouldn't be the Wild West if we didn't have somebody claiming that Bloody Bill Anderson did not die at the hands of Union soldiers. That he faked his death and lived to be an old man. Because fuck it, we love our fairy tales. In 1927, an article was published claiming that an 84-year-old Brown County, Texas man, William Columbus Anderson, known as Uncle Bill Anderson, was actually THE Bloody Bill Anderson. Is there any truth to this? Well, that just depends on how you want to spin things in your own mind. You can follow this Brown County Anderson's paper trail all the way back to the Civil War. You can find him on the census records. You can see where he enlisted and served 20 days in the Confederate Army in 1864. You can see him and his brother's names listed on tax records in Brown County, Texas a year prior in 1863. Surely there's no way he was also in Missouri leading a band of guerrillas, right? Well, the same thing could be said about a certain Oliver Roberts, a.k.a. Brushy Bill Roberts. But that doesn't stop a whole hell of a lot of people from believing that he was Billy the Kid. So I'm going to leave this one up to y'all. All I can say is I hope like 50 years after I die, some old guy claims to be me. And not just some random person either. I want whoever it is to be black, and preferably have Down Syndrome, and a Boston accent. And I want at least one of y'all to be like, hey, I used to listen to that guy's podcast. And on that note, I think that's about all I've got on Bloody Bill Anderson. One of the sources I used while researching this episode was the EssentialWarCurriculum.com article on Bloody Bill written by Matthew T. Holbert, who I also quoted earlier. I'll link to it on this episode's show notes. It seemed to be one of the more well-researched biographies that I could find, and it includes a lot of suggestions for further reading. Books like Bill Anderson, The Short Savage Life of a Civil War Gorilla, written by Burt Castle and Thomas Goodrich. If you do a Google search, you can also find other articles online written by Professor Holbert concerning Bloody Bill. For another point of view on Bill Anderson, or I guess I should say more specifically, Quantrill's Gorillas, check out the website QuantrillsGorillas.com. Now this site appears to either be run by or just use a whole hell of a lot of content written by Paul R. Peterson, who I also quoted on this episode. He's the guy who wrote that book, Quantrill of Missouri. Now this website has a ton of links and articles as well, and even though I'm relatively sure they wouldn't like my take on Bloody Bill, I felt it was only fair to include them. You know, just don't take my word for it. Check out all the various sides. Thank you all for listening. Please share this podcast with somebody. Share it on Facebook. Send a link to a friend. Release carrier pigeons. Tell somebody. And just real quick for all y'all listening on YouTube, 
I've recently had a couple of people contact me asking if I could sort of spice things up a little. Maybe incorporate some type of slideshow as opposed to just that one static picture that I currently post. The short answer is no. Go fuck yourself. Just kidding. No, uh, the reason I don't do some sort of slideshow or something like that is I just don't have enough time. If it was something I could slap together really quickly, I promise you I would do so. But the way I want to do it, it would add hours to the process and take up time that I do not have. So yeah, it's nothing personal. I just flat out don't have the time. But yeah, thank you for asking. And if I didn't have this pesky day job, I would most definitely have uh, some extra for all you YouTube listeners. I really appreciate y'all. All right. That's about all I've got for this episode. I hope y'all have a wonderful week. Try not to do any looting or pillaging. Please don't scalp anybody. Don't write any letters to the editor. And definitely try not to start another civil war before my next episode. Let me at least knock out Chief Joseph before we uh, break out into civil war. Adios. Adios.